Welcome to a new episode of the Book Club for Busy Lives podcast, brought to you by Quinnipiac University's School of Health Sciences, Inclusive Excellence Committee, and Quinnipiac Center for Teaching and Learning. In this episode, we continue our exploration of issues relating to inclusive teaching in higher education through our discussion of the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do. The book is a thoughtful investigation of insights into issues instructors in higher education encounter in creating inclusive classroom environments. On today's episode, we will be joining host Dr. Karen Majeski, Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy, and Dr. J.T. Torres, Director of Quinnipiac University Center for Teaching and Learning, as they speak with Dr. Donald Sawyer III. Dr. Sawyer was born and raised in Harlem, New York, and is the son of two dedicated parents who saw education as a tool for transformation and its limitless possibilities. As a first-generation college student, Dr. Sawyer graduated from Hartwood College with a bachelor's in psychology in 1999 and later received a PhD in sociology from Syracuse University. He holds a master's degree in sociology as well as a master's degree in cultural foundations of education. Dr. Sawyer is currently the vice president of equity and inclusion and the chief diversity officer at Quinnipiac University. Dr. Sawyer is also a tenured associate professor in the Department of Sociology, Criminal Justice, and Anthropology in the College of Arts and Sciences, as well as an assistant clinical professor in the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac. Dr. Sawyer teaches courses exploring race, education, popular culture, and social research methods, including the university's first course dedicated to the sociological study of hip-hop culture. We join our conversation in progress. So I don't know if the authors of the book will agree with me, but to me, it seems that what inclusive instructors do mostly speaks to readers who are already open to changing their practice. You know, for the most part, they want to be inclusive. They understand the moral imperative. Um, they are on board and they believe that education is inherently tied to social justice. But as an educator, I'm always thinking about a different kind of audience, the ones who need convincing. Um, the ones who don't really see inclusive education as important, and how do we reach them, right? You can't teach who you can't reach, so how do we do that? Um, and I'll, I'll share a quick story about my own upbringing. So I was born in Florida, and I was born into a huge football family in Florida. Around 2016, when Colin Kaepernick first took a knee, um, I was out in Washington State, and I remember how angry my family was. And just let me give a little bit more context because I know nobody can see me. I am a very, very light-skinned white Latino, but my family has different shades. And it was really interesting to me to watch particular members of my family get so angry about Kaepernick, and to the point where I heard them say things like, politics don't belong in sports. Um, or it isn't the job of NFL players to educate others or to bring these issues to the forefront. And I found that incredibly interesting. Also because I was in my second year of my PhD program and I was working in a teacher education uh, program. I was helping uh, public school teachers go through pre-service training, get placed into schools. And at the same time, you know, Trump's election w uh, was going on, the, the campaign and then, uh, and then his eventual nomination. And I heard frequently from teachers asking me why they needed to be concerned about the state of the country, why they needed to care about diversity, because all they were going to do was, quote unquote, teach their subject. All of these questions have followed me around for years until we got to this point um, of recording this podcast episode where we are asking, whose job is it to, quote unquote, do diversity? And how do we collectively share that responsibility? How do we bring others along in our forever work of creating a more equitable learning environment? 
So that's a great point, um, JT. Thanks for starting us off with that. And I would like to just read a short excerpt from the book um, just to kind of talk about the shared responsibilities or like, like who's responsible for this. So the book tells us, as expressed by the respondents in the national study, lack of institutional commitment to inclusive teaching is one of the largest barriers to implementation. Lacking support from colleagues or administration is a barrier to the adoption of inclusive teaching approaches. Institutional commitment is reflective of strategic plans around equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as resources and support structures in place that support inclusion. When there is institutional commitment to inclusive instruction, there is evidence through artifacts such as strategic plans, diversity statements, as well as financial resources and professional development opportunities. As, as always, our goal is to take this book and help readers make sense of it um, for those who may or may not be reading it. Fortunate, uh, fortunately for us today, we have Don Sawyer with us. Um, hi, Don. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Can I jump right in? Absolutely. Sure. Um, because when, when you read that, that piece, part of, part of the thing that came up for me, how do I say it? Well, it, it sounded like sometimes people use those things to make excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, that you need to have a diversity plan, you need to have a diversity statement, you need to have structure to do inclusive teaching. And I, uh, unfortunately, I don't buy it. Um, specifically for those of us who are doing these practices, even before we writ- wrote about them, even before we read about them, we didn't need those structures in place in order to do it. And so it was like, it's my classroom, it's my space, I try and create a community with students and I do it. And I never necessarily looked for outside support to do it. And so, I get it. I get that piece that, that that's important to have on a, in the university campus, but it's not needed. I I don't think it's needed. Yeah. What what is needed? I mean, I think part of it is if if we think about the classroom space and the environments that we want to create. In a sense, I believe in doing what you think is necessary in that classroom space is important. I don't necessarily look to a dean or anyone else outside of my classroom space to support what I'm doing in, in the way that I, that, I, that I teach. It would be nice, but it's not a necessity. Like, it's going to go down in my classroom whether or not we have those institutional structures. Yeah, can I, just to respond to that, um, can I share a quick story about how I met you? I think it's how I met you. I'm not too sure, but in my memory is how I met you. Um, I walked into this position directing the Center for Teaching and Learning, not knowing many people here. I moved to Connecticut in 2019. I was teaching track. And then when I became the director of CTL, I just didn't know a lot of people. Um, I'm not really, I'm kind of fuzzy on that first interaction, but I just remember, Don, you reaching out to me and saying, like, here's my phone number. If you need anything, text me. Um, And then we just talked about shoes and hip hop and things that weren't work work related. We just talked about, you know, being human and connecting and what does it mean to be in space. I hear that in the explanation you just provided. So here's my question for you. Did you offer your friendship as a good human or as the DEI direct uh, VP? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, was yeah. that was that like part of your job description? I must do this or like I'm just going to be a caring person in this space. No, I mean, I reach out to people who 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 I meet. Right. If, if people are, are new hires, um, you know, I, I'll go to, you know, new employee orientation and things like that because they invite me because of my role. But the connection that I have with people is on a, is on a human level. Like I remember being 
a faculty member coming into a new community, sitting in my office, watching people walk by and not say hello. Mm-hmm. Right? I know what that felt like. And so it's like if I meet new people, I want to bring them in and be like, look, I may not be in your area. I mean, I don't, you may not need anything from me, but here's my information if you ever want to connect and learn anything else about what I do or what's happening at the institution. I think that's how we build community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the first time I met you, too. Oh, my gosh. When? It, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do <laughs> the day I met Dawn stories. <laughs> well, I was a parent, and my son really? was a first year, okay. and you were giving a welcoming address. So I'm just interested, like, you know, your, what went through, what goes through your mind when even you're welcoming students, the way JT just said you welcomed him as a, as a faculty member. I mean, I think, so if I, th- there was a year that I did it in, on the York Hill campus in the arena. Um, and part of it is like, okay, what do I say to incoming first year students about their future? And, and so part of it is being vulnerable and sharing my story, the ways that I've messed up, but also kind of sharing with them the potential that I believe education has, like the trajectory um, that can be changed as a result of a quality education. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I, I greet students. I try and meet them where they are um, and, and hopefully let them know that, you know, if I can do it, if I can be up here standing in front of you after hearing my story, then there's no way that you can't do it. Um, mm-hmm. And so just really, again, like connecting with people as, as humans. Like we all have fears. We all have hopes. We all feel pain. We all feel love. And all of those things, I think we can connect across all differences on, on those areas. Let's get back to something that you shared in response to the excerpt from the, from the book. Um, you said how, you know, many, many people have been doing, again, quote, unquote, this work, um, and I, I just put quotes around it because now the quote, now that work has labels to it. And you've been doing this work for years before it became trendy or before it became popular acronyms like DEI, EDI, and, and so on. Um, 2020 changed a lot of the institutional landscape, not necessarily the cultural work and engagement, but the institutional landscape where there have been many, many more positions in higher ed, in corporations, um, in public spaces that are specifically named, right, diversity officers or vice president for diversity and so on. Um, what's your, what has your experience been as someone who's done, you know, who's built community and who's ga- who, who has engaged others and it's just been a good human doing work of including others versus after you received a label that said that you are specifically the diversity person? How has that changed things for you? Um, I, I mean, I think I told you before that I never wanted to do this work. I never wanted to be a chief diversity officer. Like I would, I ran from it. Because as a person of color in higher education, there was this belief that if you became a chief diversity officer, that you would be pigeonholed and you will never be able to get out of that place, Mm. right? Or that people would think that that's the only level of expertise that you had, or that because of my black skin, that automatically made me an expert in race issues, and that that wasn't the case. So I always did DEI work, no matter where I was, but I didn't want to necessarily have the title for the university. And so it wasn't until 2017 when I said, oh, I'll do it, you know, on an interim level, um, on an interim basis um, for the provost at the time, with all intentions of going back to the faculty after they hired that that new person that they were going to be searching for. And it just so happened that I became the new person after going through the, the, the process. Now, I don't see anything wrong with having a person as the point person. But that person cannot be the be-all and end-all of this work. Exactly. Um, like, I equate it to 
having a chief financial officer. Like we have a CFO at the institution, but our CFO is not expected to go into every department, every academic unit and non-academic unit and actually do their budgets. He's not expected to do that. He's expected to look at the overall budget for the institution and to make sure that we're using our resources in a fiscally responsible way and to guide different departments. And so I see the CDO role as that as well. Like it's not meant for me to go into every academic unit, non-academic unit to do the work of DEI. Yes, I want to be able to be the person to help lead the institution forward in those areas, but the people who are in those areas have to understand and do their own work. And all of it has to be kind of pointing toward the overall vision for DEI at an institution. Um, and, and related to that, like I, I, one of the frustrations is, is there's a lot of performativity in, yeah. in, in this space, right? So yeah. you have people who be like, you know, we don't say DEI because we think equity should be first. And so we say EDI. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, what, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Show me your receipts. I don't care what letter you have first. It doesn't matter. And people are like, oh, no, we have to have belonging in the title. Okay, you can have belonging in the title. It doesn't make your institution better. It doesn't make your committee more revolutionary. It's about, like, what is the work that you're doing? What is the community that you're creating? And again, show me those receipts of what you're doing. I don't care about the language. I don't care about the statements. I want to know what the action is. Yeah. How, so, you know, this podcast exists for an audience who they have open minds as well. So I didn't mean to criticize the book necessarily. It's not a critique. It's just, you know, thinking how do we expand that audience. But uh, the audience for this podcast, we imagine, are people who, you know, they're short on time or they're short on commitment and they want to keep up as best as they can. In your experience, what have you found that has worked to help share you know, that work? As you said, you know, you, it's not your job to go into departments or schools or, or the small spaces and tell people how to do their jobs necessarily, but to guide them. So what have you found that works to help create a collective responsibility? I, mean, I think I've, I've done like group sessions with people. Um, and I think you should do group sh- sessions as well. Because I know when we talk, you be doing a lot, you, you do a lot of individual meetings mm-hmm. with people, mm-hmm. and there's only 24 hours in the day, unless you have <laughs> found a way to add more. <laughs> I um, have not. I okay. have not. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think in those sessions, when you when you have group sessions and you talk about like your successes and you also talk about your failures, I mean I think that that that's important, right? When you have people in there who want to do this work, you, you create this community where you're you're sharing best practices and you're sharing some of the obstacles that you face and you collectively come up with ways to overcome some of those obstacles. And, and that those are the ways that I've learned how to do this work and those are the ways that I try and share the things that I've learned um, in doing this type of, of, of inclusive work within classroom spaces or just even outside of the classroom spaces um, and just building community wherever I am. Yeah, you keep talking about wins and losses. You've brought up the term vulnerability. Those are things that JT and I keep speaking about. But sometimes we have trouble actually in having people engage in sharing their loss or being vulnerable in this area. Um, So we're we're you know scratching our heads on we're sharing our. Um, attempts, our mistakes, like sort of modeling um, so others can also feel comfortable in sharing their mistakes or or, or things that they've tried. Um, So I'm just kind of curious. We're we're trying to get at this genuine nature of of what you're describing. Um, So the conversations, the talking, but people need to be honest and open and willing to be reflective and and share their wins and losses. Mm -hmm. Humility. I mean, humility is key. And first, I want to give a shout out to one of my colleagues, 
um, Dr. Lauren Kelly. She's a faculty member at, at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and she just got tenure, so I'm going to give her a shout-out. But we, we worked together on like youth and hip-hop pedagogy and different things like that, and so we wrote an article called When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. Um, because a lot of people talk about, okay, if you use hip-hop, hip-hop ed and hip-hop pedagogy with youth is a way that you can connect with them. And it is a way that you can connect with them. And sometimes you only hear about the successes, right? And so when you see all of these successes, it's like, wow, can I do that? But we decided to say, we're going to do this presentation and write about the, the ways in which it went wrong, that it, that it didn't work. Um, and when we did that, I think we did the presentation at um, the AERA conference, the American Educational mm-hmm. Research Association conference. Um, and the feedback that we got was, yeah, this was great because you all, in a sense, humanized it and let us know that we didn't have to be perfect in doing this work, that it was not necessarily a destination, but it was a journey um, in, in doing this work specifically as related to like critical education and hip hop education in that space. And so we were vulnerable and shared all of the ways in which it worked. But then we also spent a whole lot of time on those 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 times when it when it when it didn't work, where students weren't engaged or what we thought would work in that space took a mean left and didn't go in the way that we expected it. But that's part of understanding um, and, and, and doing this 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 type of, of, of teaching or educating and building community in these spaces. Do you find that's that's a lot more difficult for people to share the what doesn't work? Um, I'm thinking about the performativity, and even for those who are genuine, do you feel that there's there's some self-saving in those spaces? Because we we is I, I think we don't allow ourselves to be wrong. Yeah. Um, and I see it in in the classrooms with students where people are afraid to raise their hand and answer a question because mm-hmm. they may be wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, right. that, that's it's okay it's okay to be wrong because then you can help find whatever that right answer um, may be um, or people don't want to sound stupid or something like that in the space of like, no, there's, we, we, we're not, we're not trying to be perfect. Like we are like struggling together to find whatever this truth is, small truth or small T truth or big, mm-hmm. big T truth. Um, but doing it wrong helped me get it right. Like that, that's kind of how, right. you know, I, I look at it. I'm like, yo, I did that. That didn't work. And one, like for instance, when I was doing a program at a high school, they asked me to do this program where I was gonna use hip hop to re-engage black and Latino males who were on the verge of being leaving school. They say they were on the verge of dropping out, but I believe that students are pushed out. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother story, right? And so they were on the verge of, of leaving school. And so I was like, okay, I came up with a book list. I told them to order these books. I came up with my syllabus. You know, I came into the classroom like this is how it's going to go. And as soon as I got into the classroom and started to build with those students and I was like, you know what, I'm going to scrap this syllabus because it, it wasn't what I needed for that classroom. I built the syllabus in the in the vacuum of my own mind mm-hmm. without knowing who I was going to in- interact with. I knew like a description of the types of students I would be with. And that's how I, you know, set up the syllabus. But we never used those books. They're probably somewhere in the closet co- still collecting dust. And we didn't use that that syllabus for that class, but we built the class based on the experiences of the students in that space, and we co-created, and we co-created, um, you know, that, that space. Um, and so again, I came in thinking I was gonna do it one way because I'm the professor, I have to have the syllabus, I'm gonna go in there, ha ha ha, right? Um, but the students, and once I connected with them, the energy said, nah, this is not what's needed for that space, and so just did something else. I got it wrong, but we flipped it and did something else, and it worked out, and we got it right. 
Yeah, um, I feel like sometimes instructors are or professors are similar to students, right? We, we <laughs> don't take the risks, just like we say our students need to take the risks. So mm-hmm. in that description there, it made me sound like sometimes we're more alike than, you know, with our students than, than we actually realize we are. Because we think that, I think sometimes, I can't speak for everyone, but you, you have a PhD or whatever degree you have and it's like you're in front of the class you have to know everything. Uh-huh. I got rid of that a long time ago because <laughs> I don't know everything. I have my knowledge is finite, mm-hmm. right? And I there's always something else I'm gonna learn. And so I got rid of th- this idea that I had to fake like I knew what a student asked. Like I would say, but you know what? I have no idea. But by next class, I'm gonna find out and I'm gonna come back to that. And when I said that, the world didn't end. The sky didn't fall. No one fired me for not knowing an answer to a student's question. So I was like, okay. But then I would go and do the research. I'm like, you know what? I found this, and this is really what makes sense. And so it's okay. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I interact with a lot of faculty and students who share with me their struggles with imposter syndrome. I can imagine how that's self-reinforced, where if I'm putting that enormous amount of pressure on myself to be everything to every student and know, I mean, that, that's like a God complex. Well, then, yeah, of course I'm going to have imposter syndrome because I can't live up to that image. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, how, how have you balanced that? I'm not to say that you have felt imposter syndrome. I'm not making that assumption, but like, right. how have you balanced that experience with having the courage to be humble enough to say, I've got limits too? Yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome is my middle name. I don't think you, <laughs> they said that in the introduction. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I dealt with it a lot. Like, from the first time I came into the college classroom, uh, you know, being one of very few, because when I came into college, I was a nursing major. So, one, there were not many males and there were not many, um, you know, men of color at that time. And so I was like, okay. Am I supposed to be here? Am I smart enough to be here? It, it, it reared its head again in, in graduate school and things of that nature. Um, so I was like, you know what? I got here. I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to continue to move forward. Not saying that I still don't think about it or, or feel it, but I have certain limitations, right? And, and through through therapy, through working with other like men's groups to kind of talk about these different things um, related to imposter syndrome, like w- one, one of the areas that I struggle with and I, and I talk with my students about it, I struggle with academic writing. Mm. It, it, I, I can do it, but it takes a lot for me to do it because it's not how I speak. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about having to put forth and write an article, I get a tremendous amount of anxiety Like when, when I have to do it because it's like, okay, I have to make it sound smart. I have to do it this way. I got to submit it. And people have to read my work and people are going to critique it. And so sometimes that anxiety causes me to procrastinate and put stuff mm-hmm. on the back burner. And that's something real that I deal with. And I share that with my students because just because I'm standing in front of the classroom or in the circle with them, if I decide to change the classroom setup, is I don't always have it all together. Like we all deal with something and this is something that I deal with that I have to kind of overcome and, and work through in order to produce this because I get a tre- tremendous amount of anxiety um, when it comes to academic writing. And I think that type of vulnerability brings me closer to the students because then they're willing to share different things that they feel, yeah. that they feel, different right. fears that they've had, right. and we try and over, we overcome it together. Right. Right? Yeah. Take, take some pressure off of you. It's all good if you struggle with academic writing because no one reads academic <laughs> writing anyway. So <laughs> like the two people who might check out the journal, you're good, you're good. <laughs> yeah, you're also describing sort of having a growth mindset. Um, 
There was something else that, that you said, and it's escaping me right now, um, besides having a growth mindset. It will come back to me. <laughs> the growth mindset piece, though, we tend to use that as a way to talk to students primarily. Um, right. Fostering a growth mindset in us, right? Us as faculty, as leaders, as community engagers, um, that's really important, but that takes time and commitment. And so one of the things that Karen and I are learning um, through our surveys and through you know, reading the book, looking at the data that informed the book and doing our own um, surveys and reaching out to people is how much of a barrier it is to get that commitment, whether it's because of time, faculty say that they don't have time, or prioritizing, right? Um, what there are faculty, and, and the authors of the book mention this when they say that you know the general principles that underlie inclusive teaching, I'm reading an excerpt, um, depend a lot on disciplinary, institutional, course, and instructor-related factors. That context matters, right? So you have some faculty who, again, come back to that notion of, I don't do diversity because it's not related to my course, right? Like biology has nothing to do with diversity, <laughs> someone might say, right? Um, in your experience, how have you responded to those kinds of barriers where people say, I don't have the time to grow or reflect, or it's just not related to what I do? I think part of it is when someone says it's not related to what I do, I think they're looking at what inclusive teaching is in a very limited way, right? If you're, if you're teaching biology, I don't expect you to do diversity workshops in biology, right? That's it's probably not the, the, the space for that, but what are ways that you can expand students' understanding of different biologists who've come up with different concepts that mm -hmm. may be women or other people from underrepresented spaces? What are ways that you can create an environment where students are a little less fearful to ask questions and, and different things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that that's part of inclusive teaching to me. And one of the things that came up went way back when, when I was a faculty fellow for the Center for Teaching and Learning um, under the previous director, you know, some people said that they didn't have time, right? Because everyone has to, to teach whatever the course is about. But I intentionally made made time, and I mean, part of it I have my I said my upbringing. Well, yeah, my professional upbringing. I started in higher education in student affairs, and so we're famous for knowing how to do like icebreakers and stuff like that. And so I would do those icebreakers and stuff early on in my class, like the first class, maybe even the second class, to break down these walls to kind of connect with the students, so they can see me as a regular human and not just as their faculty member. Um, and then I'm able to delve into deeper topics, right? And so I don't think I lose time because I think you and I, we talked about like how if you do this work now, mm -hmm. by the end of the semester, you'll still get all the things that you, you need to get into, but because of the environment that you created in there, that actually makes it a little bit easier to, to do that to do that type of work. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, like doing you, a story of a name. Correct. You created that sense of belonging first, and then you're able to um, get to the content because we know that the, they're, they're connected. When someone feels belong, that they belong, then they're able to focus on the cognitive task um, at hand. Um, the other thing that you were speaking of earlier was the flexibility in your course design or your ability to, to adjust or shift. Um, that doesn't take time to do. That might just take um, some experience, I guess, some trial and error that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But you're creating equity. This isn't working for this group of people. I need to be flexible and change my plan for what I had thought I was I was setting out to do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's a difference between diversity in 
the content and inclusive environments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's right. different. Yep. Like I don't right. expect you to be in biology class and teach about Nelson Mandela and so, like or, or apartheid. Maybe you can, right? But that's not what what the inclusive classroom is um, mm-hmm. because sometimes people ask, you know, Don, how can we incorporate DEI concepts in our classes? And I'm like, if you're thinking about it like DEI, like content, it's not going to happen in every class. It's a little bit easier for me because I'm a sociologist and the, the classes I teach intro to sociology, sociology of education, sociology of race. Um, you know, I'm doing stuff with the, with the criminal justice system. So some of those topics, it's easier to talk about, like these issues of race, racism, gen- gender, um, and all of those those topics. It's easier, like in the content. But I look at that as different from the environment that I create in the classroom that allows me to talk about that that content. I think those are related, but they're I think they're two different things. And so even if I'm a, a physicist. I may not necessarily be able to talk about the same DEI types of content that I talk about in my sociology class, but there are certain inclusive things that I can do to create an atmosphere in my classroom right. that makes teaching Absolutely. physics easier. Correct. So I think they're related but separate. Right. Absolutely. And that part saves time. Like that part has made it easier for me objectively as an instructor. Um, when I first started teaching, I used to think that I had to tailor everything that I was teaching to every single individual student's interest. That's impossible, right? <laughs> I can't know like 40 different interests and then try to make these differentiations. So what I've started to do is just open up spaces for choice. And I teach a writing course, right? So I, I'm teaching students how to have the research skills, the literacy skills that they need to pursue whatever topic they want to pursue. I don't gatekeep the topics that they can explore and learn more about. Um, and that has made it easier for me because that means I don't have to prep so much ahead of time. I just come in with the methods teach students the methods, and then they get to share that work. They're doing more, I'm doing less, and all I've done is just make the classroom adoptable based on who's in it, and that has saved an enormous amount of time. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question about that yeah, process? Yeah. Because I remember when we did the first year immersion program and you had yep. students kind of come up with their own you know, topics and different things, um, and so in the way that you just described it, have you ever had moments when like the what students came up with on their own like just blew your mind? Oh, every right. every semester, every semester. And then I and that's the other part. So not only does it save me time, but I get to pretend I'm a student again mm-hmm. and I get to learn more. Um, I'll share one now, a fun fact from um, one of my students this semester is researching the difference between musical genres, um, the effects that they have on a psychologically, sociology, uh, sociologically, and um, what. One study that the student found, the student is doing her own project as well, um, but one study that she reviewed in the literature, it found that um, metalheads, people who listen to heavy metal, tend to score the highest in mental health. So like, who knew that, you know, listening to the music that used to be called satanic um, can actually make you happier? I had no idea, it blows my mind. And mm-hmm. she loves heavy metal, and she's just like rolling with this, and now her project is the association between musical genres and wellness and well-being mm. yeah that's pretty cool you see what oh, i'm yeah. saying but that probably would not have come you you probably would not have to exactly put that on a on a on a list of topics for students to write about exactly exactly and when i work with other faculty who teach writing courses uh, language arts courses in public s- uh, school settings or in higher education they do so much work in theming the class and setting up topics and inevitably they're going to have students who are disengaged and they tell me all the time why don't why doesn't my student want to research um, this new legislation I was like because not everybody's interested in the same thing so again you're doing so much work for one 
topic when every when not everyone's going to buy into it. Mm-hmm. And so just leaving that choice, yeah, there's that benefit of you learning and you don't have to plan everything. You invite the students to do the planning. Mm-hmm. And, and w- one of the things that I found, so I'll do like I'll do like two or three sample topics of what like I'm thinking of my sociology of hip hop course and I'm like, "Oh, you can write about this, you can write about that." But what do you what do you think? And like people come up with all of all of these things, um, you know, people talk about like m- misogyny in the music or people talk about like the lack of love that is shown um th- th- like through the music and how that impacts like parenting relationships and like like all like all of these different things that I didn't have the time to come up with all of these topics but once you you know introduce students to like the skill set of how to do research how to exactly. be critical in that work the topics that they come up with and and do on their own like have been like unbelievably like a, just um, like amazing when, when they when they do it themselves once they have you've laid that groundwork like I, like my mind gets blown all the all the time when I think about like the topics that they come up with and what they want to focus on exactly and so Karen this is a conversation you and I had um, I think about this all the time at the Center for Teaching and Learning when I do designs like this like like what Don and I are talking about is this just good teaching or is this inclusive teaching. <laughs> Put me on the spot um, before you ask the question. I was thinking it's really universal design for learning, yeah. right? So it's inclusive teaching. Um, but why do we have to label it inclusive teaching? Isn't it just good teaching? Um, so there is some um, information on that in the book, actually, about how why is it um, teaching excellence and why is there inclusive equity and inclusion um, like as separate concepts? Why don't we define? I'm actually going to pull it up from the book because I don't want to misquote it, but actually define teaching excellence as teaching that is inclusive, engaging, and Mm research-led. So actually defining excellence in teaching with the term inclusivity in that definition um, is really how we don't separate the two issues. Right, right. So that way we don't have the option of leaving it out. Right, to say, oh, I can be a good teacher and not care about creating an inclusive space. That's right. And, and it, the thing is, when, when you do what you just described, it works everywhere. Like, yeah. it, it works yeah. everywhere. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to, to work with, you know, high school students. And these practices, guess what? They work there. Mm-hmm. They work here in the college classroom. Um, you know, I've, I'm, I'm fortunate to teach a course. Well, I have a class tonight. Um, I teach a class on Mondays um, in, a, in a maximum security prison. And guess what? Th- these skills work in that classroom as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like they're 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 transferable. Um, and and you know the things that we discuss in in the class that I have in prison, unbelievable, right? Um, and I want to give another shout out to to Brian Koontz. We we mm-hmm. were just having a, a, a conversation. He also teaches a course in prison, and he was talking about one of the the things that his student was working on, um, in in a writing project. And the student was doing, and Brian, forgive me if I mess this up. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was doing a writing project, and he wanted to write about, this is a student who's currently incarcerated, and he wanted to write about the presence of exit signs within the, the prison. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, we take it for granted for us to know where to go when we're leaving the, the facility, but however long this person is sentenced to, that exit sign actually means nothing wow. to him, right? Or it right. means a lot to him, right? And so right. he writes about what that exit sign means to see it every day and know that you're not leaving, you know, leaving that space. And I was like, yeah. I, was, I don't even think about that, right? You have you know? to be really in it 
to see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when we allow students to open up and write those things, I mean, they benefit from, you know, our feedback. But, you know, when we talk about like how education transforms, one of the questions that we have we have to ask ourselves is who who does it transform, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I mean, I assume it transforms my stu- it transforms my students in some way, shape, or form. But selfishly, I'm transformed by creating those inclusive spaces because students feel free to come up and showcase all of their brilliance. Where it makes me a be- better educator because I'm thinking about all of these things in the next time. And so, selfishly, when I create an inclusive space. I'm transformed by it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. I know people have asked JT and I, is this um, podcast just for those in higher education? Um, and we keep saying, if you learn to create inclusive spaces, then it really, this topic is transferable to other spaces, not just in higher education. Um, so I think your example really just shows that it's really not just about higher education, although that's our focus. Mm-hmm. But yes, we could bring this to all of our spaces in which we're interacting with a group of people. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna channel some pushback that I've received uh, just to hear how you all respond to that. Um, when it comes to something like a strategy like allowing students to figure out on their own how to make use of the skills and strategies that they're learning in the class, such as choosing their own topics. I have interacted with many faculty at different institutions across the country who they might not say this explicitly, but what they communicate implicitly is their lack of trust in a student to choose their own topic. So I have heard pretty explicitly, they're in college, they don't know what they're interested in. I need to show them. How, how, so like we're talking about a dispositional battle, not necessarily like I don't have time or, um, or um, I, I give me the guidelines and I'll try things out. It's I don't trust this student. How do we work on trust in these learning environments? I, what do you, it's, everybody's <laughs> interested in something. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And, and I think when we give people that space to go out there and, and see and, and look into it, that, that student finds out so much more about whatever topic they're looking into. And we, in, in turn, find out more more about it. And, and, and I think the other piece is I, I have children, and two of them still are you know living at home. One is 18 and one is 16. And having conversations with, with them about just the world and the things that they're interested in, the things that they see, the things that they spend their time doing, it's unbelievably fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. And if they were in a space, I mean, I don't give my kids homework, but <laughs> I would say, well, research that and let me know like what, what you think, what, mm-hmm. what you find. Um, and so they, they know, they, they don't necessarily have the same level of expertise that we have in, in the training that we've had over the years, but they're interested in something. Mm-hmm. Like there's something that has that spark for them that if they start to dig a little bit deeper in, they're going to have those aha moments. Like I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And so to say that students don't know what they want to study, like we don't even know what we want to study. We come up with research questions. <laughs> and then when we get into the study and start interviewing people, we find out that what we wanted to know is actually not the, the, the best approach to it. And so we find new things. And so technically, we don't know what the hell we're doing. 
I'm laughing because that is very true from my experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also give a list of topics for ideas or brainstorm. And then I'll I'll tell the students, if you're truly interested in something, I might want to make sure it connects to the content in some way where the whole class is going to benefit and learn from this too. I guess this is an example where they might be presenting the topic to the class. Um, So think about it. Reach out to me. Let me know what you're thinking of. Um, And I actually have an email. I just pulled it up from one of my students. We started looking at our special topics today and we were reflecting. We remembered you saying briefly that groups could explore other areas of interest. With that said, we found a topic we're interested in and wanted to run it by you before moving forward. I mean, so professionally articulated. And their topic was incarcerated adolescents, juvenile youth, and what could OT by discipline, occupational therapy's role in assisting with the transitional care for these students back into the community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did not put that topic on the list. It wasn't something I was thinking of. I come from more of a developmental disabilities background. What an amazing topic. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, their presentation was absolutely fantastic. I learned so much, like you're saying, um, and I'll be sure that this is a topic I always put on the list for people to choose from because it's so important. But I feel that's how, as an instructor, you can have um, students really um, have that multiple mode of engagement versus here's the topic list, sign up and do your presentation. Mm -hmm. They're invited into that process with you. You. Um, and as long as it's something that, um, you know, is pertains to the class, if they had said something about, I, I can't even think of a bad example, I might have to say, how could we turn that into something that's more relatable to class content, right? Yeah, but still uh, yeah. work with them. And, and I think that's the piece, right? Not shutting students down, right? If they come up with a, a topic that might need some work, like, okay, let's pause and let's unpack that. Like, what, what are some other ways that we can kind of frame this that, that makes, you know, this topic work? And But that I think that only happens when you've created a level of trust in that classroom space where people feel free to give their peers some feedback. Um, they know that you're not going to necessarily shut them down if the idea is not polished as soon as they, they present it. Um, and I think that's also part of creating an inclusive space or just good teaching. Right, right. I, I really appreciate these these two takeaways for people um, who are listening and interested. One, that trust piece has to happen. And we know that for many, many years, I mean, going back to Maslow, right, if people do not feel safe in a space, they're not going to learn, grow, develop, or engage. Um, so that trust needs to be there. And also what we're talking about interest um, as the Ed Psych nerd, uh, situational <laughs> interest has been studied for many years and has serious cognitive benefits such as motivation, engagement. Um, people are more likely to take risks when they're interested in the topic. So one way that we can make an inclusive environment, we don't have to think about every single particular social identity in our class. Um, we should not do that. We should not tokenize, right? But just make space for interest. As long as every student can see themselves in that space, right, then you have an environment that works. So it needs to be open, adoptable. UDL is a great approach for that culturally responsive teaching, but it's just making space for interest. Can I share one more example of pushback that I've received? I'm talking about defining teaching excellence as that is inclusive, engaged, and research-led, right? So University of Oregon um, transformed their course evaluation process to provide feedback from both students and instructors on the inclusive teaching efforts 
of their faculty within their faculty development plan. Um, and I've, I've heard or personally experienced some sort of pushback on that, um, that it's not connected to the teaching excellence or practice of, of instructors. So I'm just kind of curious what both of your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have a weird relationship with teaching evaluations. Like my teaching evaluations have always been high, but I don't know if that necessarily means that I'm doing a good job, right? It could be <laughs> just that I'm doing a horrible job, but students just like me for some reason, right? So I, I never really put a lot of weight yeah. in the teaching evaluation um, piece. My, I, I look at, I want to be evaluated by where the student comes in at and where they leave my class. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's how I want to be evaluated because I think sometimes evaluations are a popularity contest whether or not you make the students feel that you're cool. But if I look at a student from where they came in and then where they are at the end, that's how I want, want, want to be judged when, when, I'm, when I'm in the classroom. And I want to give a shout out to another student, mm -hmm. another, another person, Mike Posner. When I was interviewing here at Quinnipiac, he sent me an email before he even knew I was interviewing. He, he was a former student at Syracuse. And he sent me an email and was like, you know, Professor Sawyer, I don't even know if you remember me, but I took your sociology of hip hop course at Syracuse and you gave all of the seniors a separate assignment from the other students called the Knowledge of Self Project. And we had to do th this reflection, blah, 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 blah. So long story short, he changed his career <laughs> goals based on like doing oh. this exercise and what he was doing. And so he wrote to me this is, and, and it came at a beautiful time because I was able to submit that letter as a part of my application process to coming here. But it's like. Those are, the, those are the benefits of doing this work. Like we, I believe that we plant seeds. We don't see the immediate impact always. But later on, like any time that I'm like, you know, does this stuff even matter? I'll always get an email or some student will walk up to me and tell me something. And that's the universe's way of telling me to kind of stay on this, on this path because something that I did either this semester or in the previous semester really started to blossom for that student um, because of the space that was created in that environment. And it changed the way they think about things or students who have become teachers, they'll say, hey, Professor Sawyer, my class, I do this exercise that we used to do. And it's like, that's what that, that's all I ask for, right? That's all I ask for. And, th and that, that's the beauty of creating these these environments where students, you know, feel safe to make these these intellectual leaps um, and be and, and feel supported in that space. So I think that's important. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Don. I just want to share my sincere gratitude for you. Um, the years that I've been here, I think I'm speaking for many people. Thank you for being welcoming, for practicing all the things that you just preached today. Um, just making me feel like I belong at this institution and making Karen others. Yeah, we, we appreciate you. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And thanks for coming on this episode to share all of your wisdom and pearls of wisdom and advice. It's, it's really been great. <laughs> appreciate it. I don't think we're pearls, but <laughs> that depends. It was wisdom anyway. <laughs> thanks. You have been listening to Quinnipiac University's Book Club for Busy Lives podcast brought to you by the School of Health Sciences Inclusive Excellence Committee and Quinnipiac University Center for Teaching and Learning. This is our final episode of this season, and we hope you have enjoyed and found our discussion informative. Season two is already underway. In our next season, we will be discussing the book, Fun Facts About LGBTQ Plus Care for Nurses, How to Deliver Culturally Competent and Inclusive Care by author Tyler Traster with a new panel of guests. We hope you will join us. 
The Book Club for Busy Lives is produced by Grace McGuire with script and presentation assistance by David Majeski. This has been a production of Quinnipiac University 2023, all rights reserved.